Positivist and opera are very seldom used together because one might consider them to be a contradiction in terms, but they're really not. We had a lot of interesting times discussing what it feels like to be an immigrant, you know, what it feels like to leave your home, what it feels like to make a home somewhere else, how you transition from being an outsider into an insider, and then how that process is reversed with your place of origin. We are not naive enough to think that an opera will somehow solve the world's immigration problems. But what we can do is create a dialogue amongst our communities. Art can change communities, and then the communities change around the arts, around the artists, around the programs, around the communities that they build. So it's about that. It's about connecting with more people and creating a positive loop of empathy and dialogue. That's when we can possibly begin to see a change. Hello and welcome to Immigration and Democracy. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Rulsock. In this series, we'll bring you fresh knowledge and insights from the team at the Immigration Initiative at Harvard, led by our director, Professor Roberto Gonzalez, and featuring voices from the field. Join us as we get to know our neighbors through so their stories. Much going on socially and politically that I don't believe we can afford to put art in an ivory tower. I think we need to be right there with people who are working towards a better America. In today's episode, we're bringing together a range of topics that might seem a little unusual. Immigration? Sure. Activism? You bet. Opera? Hmm, that makes me think of bow ties and Wagner. So where does that fit into our discussion of immigration and democracy? Cerise Jacobs is an opera creator and librettist who is originally from the multicultural hub of Singapore. Cerise has spent time all over the world, and she now lives in Boston, Massachusetts. I met Cerise at the premiere of one of her recent operas, I Am a Dreamer Who No Longer Dreams. I love opera, but this was something else. I Am a Dreamer That No Longer Dreams is really a story about immigrants. And of course, on one level, it's about dreamers. And then on another level, there's sort of a deeper level to it, a more sinister conversation, perhaps, which is really that of how is it that immigrants from different parts of the world, when they come to the United States, how are they welcomed differently? How are they treated differently? And how do they have access to different types of privilege? The immigrants are not just a mass of teeming humanity in caravans, but they're real human beings, each with their own very important story. A graduate of Harvard Law School and a former federal prosecutor, Cerise knows a thing or two about fighting for rights. But the way she weaves themes of social justice into her work is something truly unique. Cerise's first opera, Madame Whitesnake, which is based on an ancient Chinese legend, won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize in music. She's also part of the creative team behind Permadeath, one of the first video game operas. Cerise was named a 2017 Mover and Shaper by Musical America. She's the powerhouse behind White Snake Projects, the incredible Boston-based activist opera company. In today's conversation, 
We talk about the multicultural influences behind her work and why myths and legends can sometimes be the best ways to tackle the toughest themes in our present day. And make sure you have the volume up high because we'll also be featuring some music from her community engagement project Immigrant Voices Sing Out Strong and from some of her operas, including I Am a Dreamer. So Cerise, you're a Harvard lawyer, you're a librettist, activism and opera. Let's talk about that. Well, activist opera is opera that is created for our times, which deals with the issues that engross us in our daily lives. For instance, when Trump issued the executive order, which abolished the protections of DACA, we wrote, created, produced, and presented I Am a Dreamer Who No Longer Dreams. And that explored the lives of dreamers, in the United States, as well as the whole issue of immigration in general, the efforts of immigrants to assimilate the attitudes of Americans born in the United States towards what Trump calls the invading hordes, though, of course, it is absolutely not an invading horde. Everybody's an individual, and that's what the opera attempted to show individuals who have hopes and dreams just like everybody else. So that's one example of the kind of work we do. This year in the fall, we have our main stage show called Cosmic Cowboy. And that opera explores colonialism or colonization because I firmly believe that a lot of the issues we are grappling with today, racism, You know, the pandemic has just exposed that wound, mass migrations, inequalities that all stems from the colonizing attitude. And because of the pandemic, we are not able to gather in theaters. So instead of postponing that premiere, we just deferred it for a few months and substituted in its place a brand new opera designed specifically for a digital platform. And it's called Alice in the Pandemic. And it's a deep dive down the rabbit hole where we explore the discombobulation, the dislocation that we feel when all our normal everyday markers have disappeared. And Cerise, how did you land on opera as your form? Because opera is such a powerful tool to enable us to focus refine and heighten emotions and issues and illuminate what is happening in our world today. Because of the way lyrics and music work with each other, the audience is able to be transported to a different world where time stands still. So a story in opera is able to move back and forth in time to toggle between reality and imagination seamlessly. And it's also able to hold in one moment many different thoughts from the protagonist because you can have all the protagonists singing like, for instance, a quartet where four singers are singing and each one is singing something 
different. I'm singing about what it's like to be a Chinese immigrant. Someone else is singing about what their life is like as a Mexican immigrant, and somebody is singing about native-born American. And we can all sing these differing thoughts together, and it coalesces into this whole, which is so much greater than the sum of its parts. That brings us back to the theme of this podcast, which is immigration and democracy, leading me to ask, well, what is the place of opera in our democracy? And what is the role of democracy in opera? This has been a very reflective time about what opera is, what is its role in society and social justice and democracy in opera. For opera to be democratic or socially just, the people working in it, the funders of it, the creators, the administrators all have to have a common vision in social justice. Because the roots of opera are precisely the roots that the demonstrators out in the streets are protesting again. Opera is quintessentially a white Eurocentric male-dominated art form, and it has continued to be so for centuries. And there are certain very popular pieces in opera that appropriately have the term is canonized. Now, that word... <laughs> with its ring of authoritarianism and elevating, you know, something to be set in stone as something above us all and exalted. It's very real in opera. And because its history is quite Eurocentric and male, the stories that canonical works of opera tell are really very, very sexist racist, non-democratic, everything antithetical to what energetic, forward-thinking opera companies believe in. So there is a movement afoot to try to democratize and to examine racism and inequality in opera through all facets of the art form, namely the canon. What stories are we telling? And who are telling these stories? Who is producing them? Who is shaping them? The answer in the past was very simple. You know, it was simply white men. Things are different now. And operas like I Am a Dreamer Who No Longer Dreams is so impactful when you understand the context in which this opera is being presented, much less created. Part of the problem with talking about the canon, where it's some kind of elevated artistry, and the fossilization of opera in the 19th century has bred a sort of thinking that, my God, it must be really hard. It must be expensive and difficult, and that's why it's good. Whereas people look at developing new opera with this idea that it would take four or five years well, if you worked on one show for four to five years, of course, you drive up the cost of it. I try to get rid of the preciousness associated with making opera. If opera companies want to be relevant, we have to learn to work at this pace. Otherwise, if you premiere something that you're passionate about now, and you premiere it five years from now, there's so much dilution. It's so much less impactful. 
what is unique about Whitesnake projects is that we produce only world premieres of original work. What that means is that we create the stories. We are moved by the moment, which enables us to truly express activism, to be able to take a difficult situation or difficult issue and to transmute it into something that is totally impactful and to be a catalyst for change. I'm not saying everybody views it the same way. I, this is how I view opera and that's why I'm committed to producing this kind of work and use opera as a tool to shine light on difficult situations. So no to canonical work and yes to work that speaks to our times. How does this kind of rebellion land within an art form that is, as you said, rather archaic and undemocratic? We had a big conversation at Opera America about racism and about the undemocratic nature and inequality in the systems that support opera. Their boards, their donors are generally older, conservative white people who will push back on it. And many companies are faced with the difficult position of pushing a philosophy or ideal forward versus financial survival. I believe that it's a matter of exposure and education. I too encountered not a lot of pushback, but some pushback, enough for me to understand that treading into this territory is difficult and that there are many differing points of view and that we have to have a vision of where we want to go because it is not the answer to just say, well, these people are just retrograde and therefore we're just going to cut them off and we don't care because for one thing, opera is a very expensive art form and pragmatically, we need financial support. But on the other hand, Whitesnake Projects is created to produce socially relevant work, to be an activist opera company. We exist to take the risk. Cerise, one of the fun facts I love about you is the fact that you're a graduate from Harvard Law School and spent 20 years working as a lawyer, followed by five years as a federal prosecutor before moving into the opera world and winning your Pulitzer. Was it difficult moving between those two very different worlds of law and the arts? Yes and no, because the fundamentals are all the same. I was a trial lawyer and I actually went to court and tried cases. So I think that was a preparation for life on stage, <laughs> life of understanding communication. Because, you know, when you think about a lawyer going into a courtroom, you have to select 12 total strangers and you have to present your point of view and convince them that your point of view is the better view. You have to be persuasive. You have to be communicative. You have to be warm. And all of those qualities served me in good study in terms of being able to write and present in a way that people could respond to warmly. I know from my own experience that it can often be very difficult to get people to respond to difficult stories warmly, especially when we're talking about the kind of complicated stories that come up when we're discussing migration. And yet in your opera world, you make this possible. 
I noticed that even when you're tackling these very contemporary issues, you draw a lot on mythology in your work. Why? I am a great believer that the best stories are mythological stories. There is a reason why myth has lasted over centuries and why there is a cultural commonality in a lot of myths. And that's because it obviously touches very profound part of our human life. It doesn't matter what culture you come from. There are certain universal stories. And these stories have all been coded in a way in mythology and it's almost as if we're all born with these stories embedded in our dna and differences are really just cultural talking specifically as a person living in the united states and the sort of awakening of america to racial injustice discrimination and inequity and to find the right words to talk about it is extremely difficult. It could be a very heated, maybe even aggressive discussion because people are passionate about this topic. And mythology is one way of getting into talking about the idea of racism, about the reality of racism, about the consequences of racism, and about whether there is a possibility of redemption. And for me, myth has been something that I use to connect to my own past. Any immigrant or expatriate is constantly in a lifelong search for identity. As an immigrant, we always feel dislocation. It's almost impossible to feel that you truly belong in any particular place because you no longer belong to the original place you came from because you're so transformed and you will never really belong in the place you are now. Because we know we can never go back in time. We will never fit in anymore. We've been changed forever. And the only way we can reconnect is through our childhood mythology and the childhood stories that shaped us as we were growing up. And of course, part of that task is to try to fit in into the new society that we live in. And we transform these myths. We reimagine these myths. When I look at Madam Whitesnake, I see so clearly now, 10 years after I wrote it, what I was doing, I was trying to reconnect to the past and also try to take the best of my future, which is living in this country with all its flaws and all its imperfections, and to find a place for myself in a new land. Race, sexism, anti-immigrant bias, belonging, poverty. I look at all through the mythic lens so that we can tell stories that actually transmute these extremely painful issues into something that we can look at and examine with an open mind and an open heart. We need to create new myths building on the old ones. That way, our stories that we tell today will have the same universal and lasting appeal that the stories of old. Pivoting from mythology, your Pulitzer Prize winning work is called Madame Whitesnake. How did that come about? 
that was an amazing time. You know, Madam White Snake came about because my husband Charles um, asked me to retire from my law practice. And as a immigrant Asian woman who had literally had to fight to get my partnership, which was a full equity partnership at the largest law firm in New England, it was a lot to give up. I felt I was just understanding what it was like to be in charge of my life, to be respected professionally. And I did it on April Fool's. Everybody thought I was only joking, but I wasn't. I remember, I'll never forget it. I said, no, I'm not retiring. He said, you know, all my life I've put off doing anything for myself. And he said, Maybe I've left my run too late. And then he looked at me and he said, when will be my time? And I said, your time is now. And I picked up the phone. Happened to be April 1st. And I called my managing partner and I said, I'm resigning my partnership. After I resigned, since I'm a person who has worked all my life, I ran away from home when I was 18 and I've been on my own. Growing up in a traditional Chinese family in Singapore, that's a huge deal. So I've worked all my life. I've tried to be independent all my life. And I started to despair that I'd ever find anything that I could devote myself wholeheartedly to because I wasn't interested in making work. In other words, okay, you can go volunteer for this, that, or the other, just to fill time. No, I, I didn't want the rest of my life to be filling time. When Charles was going to have a big birthday, I thought I'll commission a song cycle. I knew what the story was. It was from my childhood. It was a story I grew up, I loved. I just sat at my computer one morning at 5 a.m. and I wrote the entire first draft of the libretto. And when Charles got up, I handed it to him and he said, what is this? And I said, this is your birthday present. So that's the genesis of Madam White Snake. And we got Opera Boston to produce it, and we were off and running. It won the 2011 Pulitzer Prize in music. It was a first for all of us. Joe Long's first opera, my first opera, and Opera Boston's first opera, and it won a Pulitzer. So it was an amazing start. Well, yeah, I think by pretty much any standards, that's a pretty amazing start. And you named your company after Madam Whitesnake too. So could you tell us a bit more about her? She sounds like kind of a big deal. For me, she represents the indomitable spirit of a woman who is downtrodden and reviled and who rises up. It's a folktale. It's a transformation myth of a white snake demon who yearns to be human, to experience love. This concept is very much embedded in a lot of cultures, like for instance, the Little Mermaid is another, well, we wouldn't call her a demon, but she's certainly not human, um, who yearns to experience love, you know, and gives up her mermaid form. Rusalka, one of the Czech legends, same thing. 
As we're going into the different cultures and cultural influences in your work, the obvious question to ask is, in the current hostile environment against Asian Americans in light of the COVID pandemic, how's all of that affecting you and your work? It was extremely difficult at the start because all the Chinatowns were the hardest hit. I was never clear whether it was a boycott or just a fear of going to Chinese restaurants because it's been dubbed the Chinese virus. There were a lot of incidents of racism where Chinese people getting spat on, acts of violence, none comparable to what is happening in the Black community, obviously. And it's also very interesting that Asian people, because of culture and training, have not found their voice yet have not come into their own. And I'm not saying that there aren't Asian groups and Asian people who do that. Of course there are, but it's not a concerted effort. I was struck to hear Cerise talk about the lack of united voice among the Asian American community, especially in light of the rise in violent assaults. When I started working on this podcast with our producer, Shiren, a Chinese-Canadian, one of the things we discussed at length was the rise in hate crime and how it related to her own experience living in New York for the last 10 years. She's been working as a producer host at New York's Multicultural Radio. There was irony, she shared, in the fact that while hers was the number one Mandarin radio station in New York, it was also the only one. I asked Shiren to share with us an excerpt from an essay she recently wrote called Five million inaudible. For many non-English speaking Chinese, English is overwhelming and reminds them of their oppression, failures, sacrifices, so my English upset their peace. This very improbable peace they've managed to carve out in the ethers unknown to the larger English speaking world, unknown even to the English speaking Chinese. Reintegration with the culture of my heritage was more difficult than learning a new language. I was fighting something that is so entrenched in their thinking, assumptions, judgments, and conditioning. Invisible, real hard things I couldn't search the dictionary for. Every day I learned more about what being Chinese is and meant. I offended the non-English speaking Chinese not just because of how I spoke, but what I spoke of. I brought in knowledge that wasn't in the Chinese world and thereby challenging the truths they held so firmly and dear, including their praise and devotion to Trump. Tulampu, or Trumpu, as they called him. A stately name for a stately man they saw as the living embodiment of the American dream, the greatness of democracy, and the beauty of the Constitution. All the things that may have offended those who did not or could not align with him did not exist in the Chinese world, where there was no difference between the New York Times and the New York Post. I learned to look at their world from their standpoint, and the English press offered little that concerned their lives the way they lived. A fully Chinese life in the U.S. is a very insular one. As someone who always embraced openness and cultures, sometimes I see their insular devotion as a form of self-harm. But I was the one who chose to enter their world, out of curiosity, not invitation. I learned to stay afloat in this cultural chasm by filling in my missing vocabulary in Mandarin instead of using English where English was the better fit. Racism, Zhongzutishi, is a tired topic in the Chinese-American community where they often speak as the victims of discrimination. But embedded in almost every anecdote are fingers that point back to themselves. Heiren, black people, and Xiyi, Hispanic immigrants, often shoulder the cultural biases of the Chinese. Do you only like music by black people? A listener called in and asked. 
One of my programs was on jazz music. I don't select music based on race, only the people who made it. Racism within the insular Chinese community is a real problem that they don't see as a problem. The insular Chinese community don't know of other narratives. At the station where I worked, my voice was the only one who challenged the Chinese and shared favorable stories of people of other cultures. But as coronavirus pushes hate crimes towards an all-time high, every positive word about a non-Chinese landed as betrayal. The two groups that shoulder racism from the Chinese community fare better in English-speaking America because they make their presence and resistance known. In stark contrast, the collective silence of the insular Chinese communities has given even more space and allowance of racism and injustice. Kids of my Chinese friends were homeschooled long before any announcement came to close the schools. Too many stories of Chinese kids being bullied and beaten and even called to be killed. In February, people were saying, it's better not to be seen on the streets being Chinese right now. My own disbelief revealed how tone-deaf I was to the sufferings of being a non-English-speaking Chinese within the U.S., regardless of which language we spoke or how audible we choose to be. Our Asian skin eroded all the differences and made us the prime target of hate. Chinese Americans count as the second largest ethnic group in New York after Dominicans. You would never know that. They probably don't even know that. There is hardly conversation between the English-speaking Chinese Americans and the non-English-speaking Chinese Americans whose lives ground in different worlds. How can people who don't speak with each other speak up about anything? The essay introduced me to a whole new side of the U.S. immigrant experience, and it spoke profoundly to Cerise. I read your article. It blew me away because... It's all the things that we have been talking about. Yeah. Like a different country. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm that, so glad it landed with you and it was able to communicate some of my frustrations and confoundments. Yes, yes. And that is what we're dealing with. And honestly, I want to talk about the lack of support or maybe that's not right, the lack of alliance between the Asian American community and the Black community, I feel that Asian Americans in general are fearful of the Black community. Well, I'm not sure if Asian Americans are. I think it's the more Asian, less American part of the Asian American. <laughs> it's the Asian identifying Asian Americans, not the American identifying Asian Americans. And how we identify. This difference in allegiances naturally creates tensions and separation. When we're profiled by our ethnicity, so much of what makes us who we are gets lost, gets silenced. Are we our skin or are we deeper than that? So many of us, especially the ones who have traveled a bit, we discover our tribes elsewhere, beyond where we were born. And so when we re-enter that community where we do look like everyone else, it becomes very disorienting. And Cerise, you brought the reimagined Madame Whitesnake back to China. And even though we all share that heritage, you, me, and the fable, the production didn't quite resonate the way it did for so many here in North America, right? Yes, I think the consensus among the Chinese audience in China was bemusement, bewilderment. <laughs> Um, they did not really recognize the way the myth had been transformed. 
Madam White Snake has had a long evolutionary history in China. You know, it's a folk tale by one of the indigenous tribes in the Yellow River region of China, Huanghe. It was originally a myth to explain the annual flooding of the Yellow River, and then over time, it evolved as a cautionary tale to warn men about straying from home and falling for the wiles of beautiful, strange women because they are going to be some kind of terrible animal spirit, like a fox spirit or a snake spirit, and that's how the white snake legend evolved. Where the white snake was evil and predatory, and then over time it became romanticized. So now the white snake is victimized. She's a beautiful woman who just yearns for her love, and then breaks up the marriage. And she's a tragic figure, a victim of the authoritarian abbot. And of course, in my reimagined white snake. She is not a victim, and she is not wholly demonic. She is both. She's human, meaning she's powerful and is an agent of her own destiny, and a controller of her own fate. And she makes choices, and some of these choices are good, and some of these choices are simply bad, the way that all human beings are. And she reaps the consequences of her choices. So it's a very different way of looking at the white snake. And I think the audience was unable to、um, understand the reimagined white snake. Do you think that has to do with the space that they go to to imagine something, or their social environments? Like, how important is the bigger environment impact on the audience's ability to interpret a work of art? As you and I both know, Sharon, they are Chinese, and they are Chinese, and we're not monolithic,、mm-hmm. and there is a huge cultural gap between the Huaqiao, you know, the overseas Chinese. Yeah. Of which I am a member, and the mainland Chinese, and I know when I go to China, sometimes I feel I am in a totally foreign country. That there's very little common ground between me and my fellow Chinese compatriots. I think people find it hard to understand that the way of thinking, the way of life, your cultural background is just different. The problem, I think, with this particular gap between my reimagining、uh, Madame White Snake and Chinese ability to、uh, appreciate it, is really because I feel my years of being an expatriate, you know, because I. Have lived in the United States for a long time after coming here through a long circuitous route from Singapore. That my thinking has evolved from living in a Western country, and the kind of agency that Madame White Snake is imbued with would not have been possible for me to imagine if I had never left the Chinese culture to live in a Western culture. I really believe that. And it was very interesting because last year we were in Hong Kong at the Hong Kong Arts Festival, and the reception was totally different. 
as you say, it's a confounding thing because we are kind of, I feel sometimes really isolated because we're not accepted as white by the white community and we're not accepted as colored by the colored community. Mm. It's definitely always being the other. Yes. And I think being the other is probably why we gravitated towards the arts. You know, everyone who's in the arts is sort of the other. Well, that's exactly why I think of all the mythologies in my background, Madame Whitesnake is so poignant to me because she's the ultimate other. She will never, no matter what she does, ever be accepted. And that is, of course, just so universal. That quest to belong, that question of allegiance and being other isn't just part of the Asian-American dilemma. It's fundamental to the question of immigration and democracy, of this shifting dance between an us and a them. We had to cut our conversation short with Cerise because she had to go and interview her mailman. We asked her if this was part of her new normal or whether Madam Whitesnake had a new project up her sleeve. What would your guess be? So if you go to our website, whitesnakeprojects.org, that's where we put out a call saying writers want it, composers want it, and we give you the topic. So it could be immigration, it could be colonization. This year, we're going to put out a call again for essential voices. We want to hear from the people who are now classified as essential workers. We want to hear from them. We want to hear their stories. And then we will pair those lyrics with composers to make essential songs. We go out into the community and seek out stories because the aim is to amplify unrepresented voices. And so we have writers who are cooks and electricians and housewives and teachers. And And if you are an essential worker, you can become a writer too. The call for this year's Sing Out Strong Essential Voices is open now. Whether you're an artist or an essential worker or both, you can become a part of the next Sing Out Strong. And as a special treat for all you listening, I Am A Dreamer Who No Longer Dreams will be available to stream online for two weeks starting today through to August 12th. I cannot stress enough how powerful this production is. The two main protagonists, one is a Mexican dreamer and one is an Indonesian Chinese attorney. And of course, I'm Chinese ethnically and Hori is Mexican. And he reflects both these cultures in his music. It was so beautiful for me to just see these two stories set together and intersecting in a way that respected their unity but also really held and recognised their difference. The opera form was just perfect to tell this story. And it's not just me, the reception has been glowing. I think this is a really important work. Honestly, personally, it might be the most important current piece of work that I've ever been a part of. It really is an American story, and I think that people will be invigorated. I think that they will leave with a lot of things to talk about. So a lot of times when the kids sing, I will start to cry. Because I'm like, oh, I remember those feelings. 
When I first came here, I felt like that. As it really is a family story, that it really blends worlds. We see stories of people in their original homeland, we see stories of people in their new homeland, and how is it that one space can allow all those fluid stories to um, live? The visual aspects of that are just a metaphor for what America is. How can this one container hold so much celebration of so many different traditions and places? My mailbox was flooded with people saying they had to leave. They couldn't even stay for the talk back because there was so much to process. They had headaches and <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing now, but you know, I was so gratified that it had this impact. My conductor said this was the first time in her life that she could stand there conducting a show, her back to the audience and feel these waves of sobs coming at her from the audience behind her. And we have been very, very fortunate because there are two other opera companies, one in Pittsburgh and one in Chicago, who have confirmed that they want to do Dreamer. They believe that it's a story that needs to be seen and heard. Fortunately for us, we don't have to travel to Pittsburgh or Chicago to see it. You can access this on our website and on the White Snake Project's website also. It talks about what is going on. It talks about something that we all need to know about. I would encourage people to come and see this because it will change you. It will make you want to do good in the world. I mean, I have to say that the libretto is beautifully written and beautifully depicting these two cultures. So it's, it's really nice. Here's a sneak preview. today's conversation, please share it with a friend, give us a rating, or a review. You can send us your comments and questions on Twitter at the handle IIH underscore Harvard. This show was made possible by the Immigration Initiative at Harvard University. It was produced by Zirin Wang and Jennifer Alsop. Music and audio clips, courtesy of White Seat Projects. Special thanks to our guest, Cerise Jacobs, and thank you for tuning in.